The reading is Psalm 145, to be found on page 631 in the Church Bibles and 925 in the Large Print Bibles. A Psalm of Praise of David. I will exalt you, my God the King. I will praise your name forever and ever. Every day I will praise you and extol your name forever and ever. Great is the Lord and most worthy of praise. His greatness no one can fathom. One generation commends your works to another. They tell of your mighty acts. They speak of the glorious splendor of your majesty. And I will meditate on your wonderful works. They tell of the power of your awesome works. And I will proclaim your great deeds. They celebrate your abundant goodness and joyfully sing of your righteousness. The Lord is gracious and compassionate, slow to anger and rich in love. The Lord is good to all. He has compassion on all he has made. All your works praise you, Lord. Your faithful people extol you. They tell of the glory of your kingdom and speak of your might so that all people may know of your mighty acts and the glorious splendor of your kingdom. Your kingdom is an everlasting kingdom and your dominion endures through all generations. The Lord is trustworthy in all he promises and faithful in all he does. The Lord upholds all who fall and lifts up all who are bowed down. The eyes of all look to you and you give them food at the proper time. You open your hand and satisfy the desires of every living thing. The Lord is righteous in all his ways and faithful in all he does. The Lord is near to all who call on him, to all who call on him in truth. He fulfills the desires of those who fear him. He hears their cry and saves them. The Lord watches over all who love him, but all the wicked he will destroy. My mouth will speak in praise of the Lord. Let every creature praise his holy name forever and ever. Amen. Thanks very much, Jill. It was wonderful just hearing it read, wasn't it? We could almost just stop there and praise God. Um, but let's open it up a bit. Let's understand um, what God is saying to us. Um, most of the sermons in this series on on um, lessons from the Psalms have been a little bit downbeat, um, learning to trust, to wait, to cry, to respond to opposition. But um, you'll be pleased to know this evening we're looking at something much more uplifting, aren't we? 
um, learning to rejoice in our prayers. And this psalm is both a call to praise, as well as an explanation of why God is deserving of our praise. It's an acknowledgement that God is so great that as humans we can never fully appreciate his glory. So it's here, great is the Lord and most worthy of praise. His greatness no one can fathom. Other translations have his greatness is unsearchable. It's, it's limitless. But I quite like a, um, no one can fathom. It's like trying to measure the depths of the, the ocean. They're just so deep. And the question we want to be asking ourselves this evening is how much are we in awe of God? How much are we amazed by his greatness? Many of you, I'm sure, will know the pattern of praying using the acrostic acts. A for adoration, C for confession, T for thanksgiving, and S for supplication or asking. I think if we were to look at our own pattern of praying, it would probably be in terms of frequency, I guess, the other way around. I guess we spend most of our time in supplication, asking God to meet our needs and the needs of, of others. Then thanksgiving. But again, thanking God when he's answered our prayers in the way we wanted him to, to answer them. Confession, a bit of that from time to time when we realize we've, we've messed up, we've let God down. But adoration, how much time do we spend praising God? On the one hand, you can't force adoration. But you can force yourself to focus on someone or something and allow yourself to be filled with admiration. As you may know, our family's been walking in the, the mountains on holiday, um, some of us more than, than others. Now you can spend your time looking at your feet and the next step you're going to make, which sometimes is not a bad thing to do, so you don't fall over. But as you do that, you can, you can be oblivious to the world around you, um, the beauty of your surroundings. Or you can force yourself just to stop and just look around. You don't need to force yourself to admire the beauty, but uh, just by stopping, you'll be filled with awe at that beauty. And it's the same with God. We can be so focused on all the things we need to do in our daily lives and be oblivious to the beauty and the glory of God. But we can force ourselves just to stop and consider God. You can read a psalm like this one and it, it prompts to spontaneous praise. You're not forcing yourself to adore God, but you're giving yourself space and time to do that. And that's why this year we, we decided to choose a verse for the year that, that lifted our eyes to God. We didn't want to say that our personal problems don't matter, but if we have a bigger view of God, then we're able to see our own problems and worries in perspective. And so the verse for the year, which I'm sure you'll know by now from two chronicles, is yours, Lord, is the greatness and the power and the glory and the majesty and the splendor. For everything in heaven and earth is yours. Similar words to Psalm 145. So how does this psalm help us to rejoice in our prayers? Before we get into it, just a couple of comments on the, the structure. It's an acrostic psalm. So each verse in the Hebrew starts with a different letter 
of the Hebrew alphabet. So literary device, not just to be clever, but it has a purpose. It's to show the comprehensiveness of God, the total praiseworthiness of God. Also, the word all or every is repeated 16 times, again, emphasizing the unlimited comprehensiveness of the praise of the Lord. The Lord is praised every day, forever and ever, from one generation to another, by all his people, for all his works and all his deeds. And the psalm finishes with that great climax, let every creature praise his holy name forever and ever. What comes through as you read this psalm is someone who is on fire for God. You cannot find enough words to extol him. What is the key thing about God that he's trying to communicate, do you think? Isn't it that God is king? First line is a bit of a giveaway. I will exalt you, my God, the king. There's no, I will praise you, God, because I think you're, you're, you're a good king. Um, if others would rather worship other kings, that's up to them. No, I will exalt you, my God, the king, the one true and only king. There's only one king. And the rest of the psalm communicates the two aspects that you would look for in a perfect king. Power to do what he wants to do and compassion for his subjects. A king who has compassion but no power to do what he wants to do is not really of much use. This is uh, Dalai Lama. Um, lots of friends, a lot of people who, who admire him, influence, but little power because he's controlled by the, the Chinese authorities. On the other hand, you can have someone with great power, somebody like this, King Jong-un of North Korea, a lot of power in his own country and increasingly in the region. But not much compassion for his citizens. Apparently, it's believed that 80 to 120,000 um, political prisoners uh, are suffering in jail. Uh, many of his subjects are experiencing hunger and poverty, whilst billions are spent on the military. But God, on the other hand, is a powerful God and a compassionate God. So let's praise him for these two aspects of his character. Let's praise God for the power of his kingdom. And those praising God tell in verses 3 to 7, have a look down there, they tell of his mighty acts, the glorious splendor of his majesty, his wonderful works, his awesome works, his great deeds. And in verse 11, the glory of his kingdom, his might, the glorious splendor of his kingdom. And the question we need to ask is, what does this kingdom look like? How does it compare with the image of a kingdom we might have today? After all, we live in a kingdom, don't we? Uh, the United Kingdom might not feel very united, um, might not feel much like a kingdom. Particularly as our queen is not involved very much in the day-to-day running of uh, her kingdom. But God's kingdom is very different. And the kingdom of God is one of the, the key things that comes up repeatedly as we read through the Bible. It's a theme that we'll be looking at in, the, in our home groups in the Bible overview I mentioned. And the definition of the kingdom of God, which um, Vaughan Roberts comes up with, which he um, has borrowed from Graham Goldsworthy, is this. It's God's people 
in God's place, under God's rule, and enjoying God's blessing. So in his Bible overview, he divides the Bible up into nine sections, which are all related to the theme of God's kingdom. It starts with a pattern of the kingdom, where God creates Adam and Eve, his people, puts them in the Garden of Eden, his place, where they can enjoy his many blessings under um, the one rule, which is not to eat anything from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And as we know, they break that rule, they lose the blessings, and so the rest of the story is about God's plan to restore the kingdom. He does that partially through choosing Israel to be a blessing to the world, but he prophesies that he will do that through the Messiah, his anointed king. So when Jesus, the Messiah, or the Christ, uh, uh, arrives, he begins his public ministry by teaching the time has come. The kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe the good news. Jesus did all that was necessary to restore the kingdom through his death and his resurrection. But he didn't finish the job there. He ascended to heaven. And he said that one day he would come again to gather his people in a perfected kingdom. And the reason for the delay being to enable more people to to hear the good news of Jesus Christ so they too can put their trust in him and become part of that kingdom. So in the fully restored kingdom one day, God's people will be Christians from from all nations. God's place will be the, the new creation. And God's rule will be the blessings they enjoy in his presence. And that is why when we go back to the psalm, we see it speaks of the fact that your kingdom is an everlasting kingdom and your dominion endures throughout all generations. This is not just a kingdom that will last a few years. The Bible mentions lots of human kings, some good, some bad, but they all come to an end. God's kingdom covers all Generations from Adam through to when Jesus comes again. It will never come to an end. And that gives us great encouragement, doesn't it? When we see what is going on in our society today, when we despair at the decisions of some of our leaders, leaders who are only there because God has placed them there, but who trust rather in their own abilities. What is different about God's kingship is that he has the power to do what he pleases. He is able to achieve his good purposes. As it says in Psalm 115, our God is in heaven. He does whatever pleases him. Human leaders spend their their whole time playing political games, getting people on their side, calling new elections to be able to do what they want to do. And more often than not, they, things don't go according to plan and they have to do things that they don't want to do. And when they do what, do what they want to do, it's often not very wise anyway. God is never forced to do something that he doesn't want to do. He's never a victim of circumstance. He does whatever he pleases. He therefore takes great pleasure in it because he knows it is good. And even the worst thing that he had to do to allow his son to die, he still took pleasure in because it was the right thing to do. It was what was necessary to achieve the salvation of his people. We can praise God for his power, but we also praise God for his goodness. 
the fact that he chooses what he does um, out of compassion. Verse 8 is a refrain that is um, uh, repeated a number of times throughout the, the Bible. The Lord is gracious and compassionate, slow to anger and rich in love. Another translation for compassion is mercy. And the idea of mercy is not giving us what we really deserve. It's linked to the reason I mentioned earlier why the kingdom has not yet been fully restored. Because God is giving his people a chance to repent, to follow Jesus as their king. In the New Testament, Peter writes in his second letter that there will be a day of judgment, a day of destruction of the ungodly. But then he goes on to say the Lord is not slow in keeping his promise, as some understand slowness. In other words, he's saying that God is not indecisive, he's not procrastinating. No, he says instead, he's patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. People are rebelling against God. People are not submitting to him as king. But he's not quick to exercise his justice. We, on the other hand, run out of patience with people very quickly when we don't get what we want. We despair when people don't come to faith or when they backslide in their faith or make foolish decisions. But God remains patient. He is slow to anger. And his mercy, it says here in verse 9, is extended to, to all he has made. There's no one who's beyond his mercy. He's willing to forgive anyone who comes to him and asks for his mercy. And so now have a look at verse 14 over the page. It says, the Lord upholds all who fall and lifts up all who are bowed down. The eyes of all look to you and you give them their food at the proper time. You open your hand and satisfy the desires of every living thing. God has compassion on those who are weak, who confess they need his strength. But what about those who trust in themselves? Think they can do things in their, their own strength. Well, he still shows grace to them. It's what we call common grace. He, he still provides for them. He provides people with their food and belongings and pleasures. Whether or not they accept that these things are coming from God. It says he satisfies the desires of every living thing. But before we, if we're Christians here, think that's just not fair. You know, why is he providing them with all these pleasures when they don't even worship him as king? Why is he satisfying their desires? Well, the thing is, he may be giving them what they want. But what they want is not necessarily the best thing for them. And as Jesus said, what good is it for someone to gain the whole world and yet forfeit their soul? If we become envious of others living comfortable lives and getting their own way in this life, when they don't deserve it, it's because we haven't fully appreciated just how much more we have if we have God's grace in our lives. If we're Christians, our souls have been restored We've experienced the love of God. God is rich in love, it says here. The love, that love is the, the word that appears many times in the Psalms. It's the word hesed. God's steadfast, his loyal love. 
In Psalm 136, it's repeated 26 times. His steadfast love endures forever. His steadfast love endures forever. His steadfast love endures forever. Coming back to Psalm 145, we also see God's love for his people. And we see that in verse 17 onwards. It says there, the Lord is near to all who call on him, to all who call on him in truth. He fulfills the desires of those who fear him. He hears their cry and saves him. Here we see God again fulfilling desires, but these desires are the desires of those who fear him. How are their desires different from the desires of others? Well, the greatest desire of someone who calls on God, who who fears God, is to be saved. To be saved from God's anger and punishment from an eternity without him. To be rescued and brought into his kingdom. And the great promise here is that if we call on God, if we, if we say to God, look, I need you, I cannot carry on without you, I acknowledge that you are the true king, and then we are told the Lord is near to all who call on him. He hears their cry and he saves them. Of course, when faced with a difficult worldly situation, many people call out to God in desperation. But having been helped, they then go back to living their lives as if God is not really there at all. To call on God in truth is to sincerely acknowledge that God is the true king and we are nothing without him. Well, the great news is that once we are part of God's kingdom, he he doesn't let us go. In verse 20 20 says, God is watching over all who love him. Another translation is God preserves all who love him. But, and we can't hide from this warning, he says the wicked he will destroy. God is a powerful king. He's a loving king. So how do we respond to him then? Well, first we can spend more time in our prayers praising him, rejoicing in him, in his goodness to us. And as I was saying to the home group leaders the other night, um, When we've read the Bible, whether it's on our own or in a group, we shouldn't be quick to turn to to our needs. But praise God for what we've learned about him. Turn that back into praise. And when we do turn to ask God for, for stuff, let's pray that the desires of our hearts that we are asking him to satisfy are also his desires. And that they're not out of balance. But I want to finish with this. It's not just about praising God more in our prayers, but living a life of rejoicing in God and his goodness towards us. What does that look like? Amaze them with God. That's the title of a little booklet which um, was given out to S Club leaders uh, the other evening. Amaze them with God. And the subtitle there is Winning the Next Generation for Christ. As the young um, writes in the book, he writes, as you try to reach the next generation for Christ, you can amaze them with your cleverness, your humor, or your looks, which is harder for some of us than others, or 
you can amaze them with God. He writes, I need a lot of things in my life. There are schedules and details and a long to-do list. I need food and water and shelter. I need sleep. I need more exercise and I need to eat better. But this is my greatest need and yours. To know God, love God, delight in God, and make much of God. He says, we, we have an incredible opportunity before us. Most people live weightless lives, ephemeral lives. We can give them substance instead of style. We can show them a big God to help make sense of their shrinking lives. We can point them to transcendence instead of triviality. We can reach them with something more lasting and powerful than gimmicks, gadgets, and games. We can reach them with God. We can reach the next generation for God by showing them more of God. And verse 4 in the psalm here we're looking at does say, One generation commends your works to another. They tell of your mighty acts. In other words, parents are called to amaze their children with God. And this is where corporate worship coming together to praise God becomes whole life worship. It's easy for us to come together as believers and praise God. We trust him. We we love him. And that's what we have in common. And one day, um, the new creation will only comprise those who, who worship God. But in the meantime, that love that we express here to God in one another's presence should be overflowing to those outside the church the rest of the week. Have a look again at verse 4 onwards. It says, one generation commends your works to another. They tell of your mighty acts. They speak of the glorious splendor of your majesty. They tell of the power of your awesome works. And I will proclaim your great deeds. They celebrate your abundant goodness and joyfully sing of your righteousness. It's all about gospel proclamation. It's not necessarily sitting down with somebody and uh, taking them through two ways to live. It's showing the impact that Jesus has on our lives. It's passion. It's hearts being taken over by God. It's faith that really matters. When Benjamin Franklin, one of the founding fathers of the U.S., went to um, uh, hear George Whitfield preach, people said to him, you don't even believe what he says. To which he replied, well, I know, but he does. We can't speak, we can't tell, proclaim, unless we believe it passionately, unless it is deeply rooted in our lives. To amaze others with God, we have to first amaze ourselves with God. Let me finish by um, amazing ourselves with some of the descriptions of God from this passage. And just allow each one to um, to sink deep and to grab your heart. I will exalt you, my God the King, because you are great. Because you are good. Because you are mighty. Because you are wonderful. Because you are awesome. 
because you are righteous, because you are gracious, because you are compassionate, because you are slow to anger, you're rich in love, you are splendid, you are everlasting. You're trustworthy. You're faithful. You hold up. You lift up. You provide. You satisfy. You are near. You listen. You save. You watch over. You are holy. Let's pray. Lord God, you are the great king, the powerful king who can do whatever he pleases. We praise you for your majesty. We praise you for the splendor of your kingdom. And we praise you, Lord, because you are a king who is compassionate for his people, who is merciful to all he has made. And we thank you that when we come to you, when we call out to you, you answer us, you are near to us, you watch over us, you, you save us. Lord God, we pray, we pray that you would so fill our hearts with wonder at who you are and what you've done for us. We pray that as we do go from here, that uh, our hearts would so be so on fire for you, that that would overflow in love for others, that people would see that there is something different in us. Because we are your people. And we are love, and we love you. So Lord, amaze us with yourself. And may we be able to amaze others with you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.